So last week we began this um, discussion of Anglican theology and what is Anglican theology. And y'all were, um, y'all were great. And I know it can be tedious and, and kind of heady. And, and I hope that it, it does come to bear on um, not just our heads but our hearts and our knowledge of, of God and, um, and how we worship Him in the liturgy. Um, and, and this week, so we did a little bit last week of, um, of some history uh, just sort of giving us a context for where things were. And then we went through um, just some things of Anglican theology that are, are generally not really disputed and weren't disputed at the time of the Reformation. And then uh, we're going to get into some topics now, today, that, um, that were really at the, the heart of um, the concerns of the Reformers. And um, it was about how we are saved. How do we become in, into a right relationship with God? Um, and this is, this is very important. And what we'll see, okay, what I hope to show you by the end of this, is that these things we believe about how God saves us are reflected in how we worship Him um, in such a way that it goes to the depths of our hearts. Because you remember what um, Cramer's um, the technical term, anthropology was, how he understood humans to behave. He said, what the heart loves, right, the will chooses, and the mind justifies, okay? What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And so to really um, get to the core of who we are, Cramer, he was shooting for the heart. Um, and he wanted to do that through a pattern of worship and scripture reading um, that would change the hearts, not just of a few people, but of a whole nation um, in a way that they would willfully choose God and pursue Him with a lively faith. That's what Cramer called it. And um, what he was coming up against was what was at the time sort of the medieval um, Roman Catholic theology. And the Reformers as well. All of them were sort of, sort of dealing with this. What, how are we saved before God? Um, and this is, this is what the Reformers saw in Scripture. It's right up here on the screen. Okay, um, They would say... Mankind is born into original sin, which we talked a little bit about last week. Um, that's sort of who we are. We're born as sinful people. Um, it's not something we choose. It's a nature that we're born into, the nature of sinful Adam. Um, God has to call us out of that. Okay, what we'll see today is we can't actually um, choose to come out of that ourselves. God calls us out of that. We have faith in Him, and then we are justified. That, again, is a technical term, um, but that means that um, God considers us in a right relationship with Him because of the work of Jesus. Do you see that? So that almost when God looks at us, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, He's seeing the Jesus um, that we read about today in our scripture reading, who wasn't tempted, um, the Jesus who never sinned, and the Jesus who gave His life for us. So we're justified. Um, but, but after that, um, the Reformers wanted to say, um, as a response to our justification, we begin to grow in holiness. And so, so there is progress for the Christian. We want to say that, that faith in Jesus will lead us into a deeper knowledge and understanding um, and following of God. Now, it's not linear. All of y'all have been Christians for a long time. No, it's not linear. Um, we don't just go up, 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 up until we get to God. We go up and down and up and down and up and down and up some more and then way down. You know how it is. It's a roller coaster ride. Um, but that's part of this process of sanctification. And then the goal, okay, see there at the bottom, glorification. One day that we will be glorified um, and in the presence of God 
And uh, full and perfect bodies, um, fully and perfectly worshiping God as he has created us to do. That was how the reformers turned the ship. They said, look, look, we're going this way and we need to be going this way. That was, that was what they recaptured from scripture. Um, up until this time, the, the church had developed an understanding of salvation that said, look, God's grace might get you in, but what you do is going to keep you there. Okay? So yeah, the grace of God, that'll get you in. That'll get rid of your original sin. And that was often understood to happen through baptism. Um, but you better do pretty good if you want to stay. You want to stay there. And so there's a, a complex system of merit, um, good works, things you could do that would keep you in the grace of God. Um, it included participation in the sacraments. Um, the sacraments then were something that would... Um, Earn us more favor with God, for lack of a better term. Um, spiritual disciplines, okay, if, if it was Lent and you were a medieval Roman Catholic, um, you would fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, not as a way to, um, to calm your heart before the Lord and re- focus on your sins, but as a way to be sure you were following the right rules so you were staying in that covenant. You see how that works? It's a totally different way of thinking. One... Um, what we do is a, is a way to, to, to stay in and to, a way to earn um, our place in the kingdom. And the other one, what we do is a response to the place that God has given us in the kingdom, okay? That our works are a response to God's grace and not a way of staying in it. I mean, that's a big difference. And Cramer got that, okay? And that's what we're going to see is reflected in our liturgy week in and week out. Um, so that's sort of the pattern and then you'll see in a few slides we're going to repeat this as we think about how we worship God. Um, <laughs> so original sin, God's calling us out original sin, our justification, then our sanctification, and then our glorification. Um, and so we're going to see that reflected now in, in the 39 articles and what we believe about God. Um, last week we talked about original sin. Um, we won't go back into that necessarily, but just to remind you um, that, the, that we believe that we are born... The moment we're born, the moment we're conceived, um, we're in a state of sin. It's our nature. That's just, that's how we are because of the sin of Adam has been transmitted um, generation to generation. And and the the only way out of that (coughs) is faith in Jesus Christ. Um, The question came up last week about babies, um, babies who've died before they've had a chance to choose Jesus. And, And I said... You know, we believe in a gracious God who's going to look at that little one <coughs> um, and see a faith maybe that, that they can't articulate and we can't understand. Um, and, and so I don't, I don't see a God up there checking the requirements and saying, oh, baby, you didn't make all the requirements. I'm sorry. I see a God looking at a sweet child and mourning that death is a part of our creation and welcoming that child into heaven. Um, that's backed up by uh, Foster Smith pointed out a, a scripture verse that I forgot um, in 1 Corinthians Paul talks about families, and um, it's this mystery of somehow a spouse, a believing spouse or a believing family, um, can sanctify the whole family and bring them into the kingdom of heaven. We don't understand how that works. We don't know what that means when people are older, but I think it would certainly apply to to little ones um, who are born and who die but have not had a chance to repent. Um, And so I just wanted to answer that question that came up last week. So we're born in a state of sin. The question is, how do we get out of it? 
How do we get out of it? How, how, how do we go from a sinful people to a people who have chosen God? <coughs> this is Article 10, and it's talking about free will. And I think some of you might be surprised at what um, the Anglican articles say about free will. The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God by Christ preventing us that we might have good will and working with us when we do have that good will. What's going on here? Well, a couple of things that this says pretty clearly. We cannot turn and prepare ourselves for God, okay? So actually, we need God's grace to even have the option of choosing God, is what this is saying. Um, we need Christ to have a good will, okay? And even when we're given that good will, we need Christ through his Holy Spirit to continue in that good will, okay? Um, who does the things in, in this passage? Who is the one? Who's the subject of the verbs? Who's doing the action here? God. It's not us. Um, and so how this plays out with regards to free will, um, in our fallen state, I think we actually have to say we have a bound will. That our wills are bound to sin. That you can choose any type of sin you want, but you're still choosing sin. Until the grace of God calls us out of that state, um, until we receive His grace, have faith in His Son, and are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are bound to choosing sin. And this is an initiation of God Himself. Um, how that works, I don't know. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that more in a second. Um, but in terms of, of the freedom of our will, um, we don't have a neutral will when we're born. We don't have, oh, thank you, John. Is that the one you've been drinking out of? Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, when we're born, we don't have a neutral will. Um, what is it? Is it John Locke who says, um, what, tabula rosa? Is that, is that John Locke? Yeah, the, they were born with a, a clean slate. We're not. We're born towards sin. We love it. We want to choose it. We think it's fun. We'd be perfectly content sinning all the time if God hadn't intervened on our behalf. Okay? And we've got to be able to start thinking about it that way. And so um, we will have to make a choice for God. And we'll talk about that later. But in terms of how we're born, how we come out, um, how we grow up and, until we've been instilled with God's grace and a faith, um, we're pretty much, much going to choose sin. We like it, and that's what we do. If you have any questions at any time, raise your hand, um, and, um, but we'll keep moving. Um, not you. <laughs> yes, Father Tripp, what is your question? Um, where do you see that? Yeah. Well, can you explain it for me then? <laughs> I, my interpretation would be without the grace by God preventing us from, not, from choosing something other than him. 
Well, I, I, maybe there's something. Well, more the, the old English word uh, prevent today it means to disallow, to hold somebody back. The old English word was mean to meant to oh. open up or allow for somebody, and that's the term from which we get prevenient grace, uh, that choosing grace that goes before us in order that God will even allow us to have the capacity to say, "Please come, Lord Jesus, come." And so it, it really, it's in the old articles, but, but that word, rather than to hold back, it really meant to allow, right. to empower. That's good. That makes sense. And so prevenient grace, which comes from, you know, it's part of that word, is a, is a grace that goes before, um, that would go before our decision, that would even allow us, like Tripp said, to decide. Thank you. Very good. That's confusing. Okay. Yes. Marion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, God's grace, I love that word, um, so a good definition will be helpful. God's grace is um, his gift and favor towards us, um, even though we have and continue to reject him. That would probably be, you know, off the top of my head, how I would describe grace. And so, so God is, is graceful to us. Um, he's giving us and offering us something we don't deserve, which is a relationship with him, the opportunity to dwell with him um, in the new heavens and new earth to the end of time. Um, because what we deserve is not God's grace, but um, God's judgment. Um, that God would judge us um, unworthy because we've sinned and we continue to sin. And so God's grace is that um, amazing gift from him, regardless of what we have done, offering us salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about God's grace. And so, for example, it would be a graceful act of God um, to allow us to choose him. Um, because he could have just sentenced us and been done with it, right? I mean, that could have been that. That could have been the end of it. But the fact that we have an opportunity for repentance, um, to me, is a graceful act of God. A, a gift undeserving to us, um, regardless of any, any merit that, um, that we might have tried to accumulate. Let's see. Blair? How does grace relate? Well, grace is the free gift of forgiveness. Um, and then we have an opportunity to receive that forgiveness or to reject it. Well, then if we were to offer forgiveness to others, that would be an act of grace on our behalf. Um, but Im implied there, if we're offering forgiveness to others, the question is, how does grace relate to forgiveness now in our own relationships? If we were to offer forgiveness to someone else, if we were to do it gracefully, um, it means that we offer it with no condition. That we would offer forgiveness whether they're actually sorry or not. Um, and that's a hard thing to do. But that would be a graceful forgiveness. Um, if you're waiting for somebody to be sorry and then offer forgiveness, um, you know, that's, if you want to do that, that's fine. But it's, it's not mirroring the grace of God that he offered us. Because it says in Romans that, that Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He didn't die for us after we stopped sinning. He died for us while we were still sinning. And so Jesus was giving his life for us while we were throwing stones at him, um, is another way to think about that. Does that make sense, Blair? Jim, do you have a question? That's right. God's unmerited favor, another, another word for grace. Very good. Very good. 
God's riches at Christ's expense. There you go, acronyms. Anything that helps you remember that, that's great. Yes. Good morning. Yeah, Tom. I don't, forgive and forget is a really hard thing to do. The question is, if somebody has done a terrible injustice, and you've forgiven that, but you haven't forgotten it, um, is that really forgiveness? Is that, that's what I'm hearing you ask. Um, and I would say, yeah. I mean, I, we can't forget things that have happened to us. Um, God doesn't forget that we're sinful people, um, if it's still burdening us, if it's still weighing us down, if it's still causing bitterness in our hearts, um, it might be that your process of forgiveness is not over. Um, but at the end of the day, it's hard to forget. Now, there's a difference between um, remembering it and not holding it against somebody or still holding it against somebody. If, you, if you're still holding it against somebody, I would say you've not fully forgiven them. But if, if you, we can't just like flip a switch and make us forget things that have happened. Um, the question we need to ask then is, where is Jesus' redemption in the midst of this injustice that has happened? How is Jesus redeeming that, whether it's in our lives or in somebody else's? Um, but sometimes, actually, we need to remember um, so that God's grace may work in our lives and the lives of, of other people. Um, but if you do forget, I mean, I, I there's, God's, that doesn't mean that's wrong necessarily, but, but, but sometimes we can't, would be my answer. Okay. Let us move on. Ah, these are the things I like to talk about now. Justification and good works. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith, and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, we are justified by faith only. I love this language here is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. That sounds incredibly British, doesn't it? Uh, this one's pretty clear. What you do does not save you. It does not save you. And it's easy to say that. And we're quite good at saying it, but, but sometimes it's really hard to believe it. Um, but, but, but this is an essential thing. We've got to understand that we are justified by the work of Christ only that we receive through faith in Him. Um, and so you could keep the holiest Lent imaginable, but that's not going to save you. That's not going to make you right before God. What will make you right before God is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and so we're justified by our faith in Him, by faith in Jesus and so then um, it goes on, and it talks about good works, okay? So if good works don't play a role in our justification, where do they come in? And this is important. <clears throat> um, albeit the good works, which are the fruits of faith, okay, you hear that? Um, faith produces the fruit of good works, and follow after our justification, um, although they cannot put away our sins, and they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment, Yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith insomuch that by them 
a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by its fruit. Okay? Have you ever ridden by an orchard of some sort? This is for you non-gardening types. And wondered, I wonder what tree that is. I wonder what they're growing there. Have you all ever done that? Okay. How do you know? If you don't know your trees, how do you know? You see a fruit. You see a, a peach, right? Or an orange if you're down in Florida. Um, you know, you see all sorts of, 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 of flowers that will become fruit even. That's how you know what tree that is. How, do, how does the world know that we're God's people? By how we act. The world knows we're out of God's tree, out of the vine of Jesus, because we bear the fruit of those who would follow him. Okay? And so that's important. What we do, okay, and so you could think even fruit of the Spirit, right? These things flow out of our faith in Jesus. They flow out of his death on the cross and his resurrection for our salvation. And so... Um, Good works can't put away sin, is what it says. What a great way to phrase it. You can't put your sin away by doing more good than bad. Your good works cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Faith in Jesus alone can do that. But your good works are a necessary fruit of your faithfulness. And the idea is, if you have faith in God, you will want to do these things. Now, we're imperfect people, okay, And if you're like me, a lot of times you don't necessarily want to do the good works. Um, And so sometimes you just have to be obedient and be like, I'm coming to church even though it's 20 degrees outside. Um, I'm going to go serve the poor, although I'm really struggling um, with politically, for instance, with the best way to do that. Um, But but God calls me to love them and serve them, and I'm going to do that. Um, And so sometimes obedience is a necessary part of this. Uh, But at the end of the day, all of it is springing out of faith in Jesus Christ. Um, doing these things can't save you, but they are a fruit of your salvation in him. Questions there about that? Okay. Moving on. Ah, this one's a good one. Yeah. Well, we'll just read it and we'll see what it says. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God whereby he has constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he has chosen. That's not an old English word, that's a typo. Um, (coughs) So no questions about it. (laughs) Those whom he has chosen in Christ out of mankind. Um, And so there's a nuance to this, so just bear with me until we finish this discussion. Um, the article is pretty clear. There's more to it, but it's pretty clear that um, there is an element of election in our salvation. Um, that God in his providence has um, somehow elected his people. We'll come back to that. As the godly consideration of predestination is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons, okay? Um, that's a comfortable doctrine if you know the Lord. Um, To be able to say, wow, he chose me before the foundations of the world. What an amazing thing. Is is that not sweet and comfortable? Um, But for curious and carnal persons, 
Um, for those who don't know the Lord, lacking the Spirit of Christ, to have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall. Okay? And so it's saying there's an element of election in our salvation, but if that's what we're preaching all the time, that's a problem. Um, because it's, it's, it, if you don't know Christ, um, eventually you're just going to give up, right? And then finally it says, we must receive God's promises in such wise, so in such ways, as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture. Um, and now some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, no. Some of you are like, this is really confusing. Um, I would just want to say this about uh, predestination. Well, a couple of things. One, um, John Calvin gets a really bad rap for this, and people think he was this determinist, and that, you know, God's powerful and provident, and God has created and then preordained every single thing that would happen, including what you ate for breakfast this morning. Um, and that's not what Calvin believed, okay? Calvin had this understanding um, in, in his doctrine of salvation. If it was about how God created the world, he would have put it in the doctrine of creation. God created, he ordained, and he let it go. But, but that's, not how, that's not how Calvin understands it. This is in salvation. And so this is a word for those who know Jesus, okay? And it's, it's unspeakably comfortable that you would be able to say, God chose me. That my salvation isn't dependent on my fickle heart. It's dependent on God's grace and sovereignty and majesty. All right? So that's the first thing is to realize this is, this is an understanding for people who know Jesus. And the second thing is this. If you're asking this question now, well, did God choose me and not choose others? Or did I choose God? Okay? Because that's the fundamental question. Do we choose God or does God choose us? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Um, if you have your Bibles, I've got one somewhere. Um, really quickly, open them up to John 6, for instance. John chapter 6. Um, and look at verse 37. And I'll read it to you so you can, you can hear it as well. John 6, verse 37. This is Jesus speaking to the crowds. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What does that sound like? Election or, or, or free choice? Election, right? All that the Father gives me. That's God saying, okay, here are these people. I give them to you, Jesus. Um, let's read down. Uh, let's go to 640. Okay, three verses later. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What does that sound like? Choice. Anyone who chooses to believe in Jesus will have eternal life. And so I think we've got to be able to say that <clears throat> choice and election on our frame of reference seem incompatible, right? You just can't, how do you match these two up? Two up. But, but to an infinitely knowledgeable God, these are perfectly compatible things. Yes, I chose you. Yes, you chose me. That's, that's just how it is. And if some of you are wondering about this and thinking, well, how, how do I know I would say if you're asking that question, God is choosing you. 
okay? If you are coming to him, that's part of God's providence. He's bringing you to him. Um, and, and it's these things we have to hold in tension. We've got to be able to say, look, you have got to turn back to Christ. You've got to make an intentional decision to stop heading this way and to start heading this way. But at the same time, we've got to be able to say to people that God loves you and he's chosen you um, while you were in your mother's womb. Before that, from the very foundations of the world. Um, and so, you know, as Anglicans, we want to hold up both of these, I think. Um, and say, yes, and yes, these are both good things. And we, we, we're going to embrace both of these. We're going to live um, in this tension of, of choice and election. Um, that's sort of, sort of how, how we go forward with that. Any questions about that? Oh, yes. Tim Lowry. Okay. <laughs> hmm. There you go. That's good. God noticed first. Thanks, Tim. Do y'all hear Tim? Yeah. Okay. Let's see, was there? Okay, Blair. Yeah. Yes and yes, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Do any denominations still fall? Yes. I would think um, if you press some folks on it, they would come to this. That um, they would say, you've got to be able to hold these two <coughs> together because Scripture... Um, you know, our, um, my um, a seminary professor, I had a word for this, and I, now I'm blanking on it. But, but the idea was, um, you just got to be able to affirm both of these. Because um, the, the, Scripture says, God chose you from before the foundations of the world. That's in Ephesians. But Scripture also says, um, you have to confess Jesus. And that's in Romans. We read about that today. Um, and so, so I think if you press people into it, most of them would come, would come to this. Not everybody, but, but most of them. How does free will fit in? Right. Well, I think it's, again, the same, the same idea that, that God in his prevenient grace, um, he gave us the grace, okay, um, to choose him or not. Um, but at the same time, he's chosen us to choose him. That, that doesn't make any sense, but that's what's happening. Um, and so, and so our, our will is bound to sin except for the grace of God who can give us the opportunity to know him. And even that, faith welling up in our heart is a gift of his, um, of his unmerited favor towards us as well. Um, 
final word on this, and we'll move on. I can answer questions later. We can really get into this if you want to. Not today, because um, we have another service. But um, this is not really an issue of salvation. Um, and um, there's a, the famous Anglican preacher. This is why I, I love him. His name is Charles Simeon. He's an Anglican. Um, he, he's in our tradition. He said, there's not a, um, a Calvinist in the world, so nobody in favor of predestination um, or and the other term would be an Arminian, people who say, no, there's no predestination, it's your choice. Um, there's not a single person in either of these two camps who, if they were in the presence of the Apostle Paul, would not have a word of correction for him. Um, and that, that's sort of a great place to be in as Anglicans, to be able to say, yeah, it says both of them. We don't know how that works, but there they are. Um, and so... I'm not really interested in, in choosing, choosing sides as best as I can tell as I'd like to go through right through the middle of that door. Um, so that's where we are with, um, with that. So um, that, that's sort of, you know, there's a lot more in the articles. And I, I really encourage you to read them. But I want us to cover really briefly then how does this play out in our worship. Because what we want to say as Anglicans is our worship um, reflects what we understand about God and um, drives that into our hearts that we would um, that we would know it um, in a very real way that, that changes who we are and enables us to have a lively faith um, and so we see that in our our liturgy and our liturgy is divided into two parts I know Tripp's probably covered some of this ground um, so we'll, we'll be able to skim over a little bit um, the liturgy of the word and the second part is the liturgy of the table or the Holy Eucharist um, and and how this is patterned actually reflects the order of salvation okay and so we begin with a colic for purity, okay? Every week we say this, um, our hearts are open, all desires are known to God, and from you no secrets are hid. So we're asking for God's initiating grace, His prevenient grace at the beginning of worship every week to cleanse our hearts that we might actually love Him, okay? We're saying there's stuff in the way in between us and God. We need Him to cleanse that, to break down that wall so that we can love God. Um, and that's God's, that's God's prevenient grace, for lack of a better word, inviting us into true and lively worship of Him. Um, we move on to the summary of the law. This is God convicting us of our sin. If you're in a right one service, okay, in, in door hall, um, we usually use a right two service. We don't have this part. Um, but, but in our prayer book, it's set up this way, that, that one of the first things we read would be a reminder of the law. This is the standard God has called us to. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all thy soul, with all the mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so we're saying, God, cleanse our hearts. Now we're, the standard is put before us. Um, and we strive for it, right? But how many of you, okay, how many of you have loved your neighbor as much as you've loved yourself? Raise your hand. Trip. Trip has. That's why he has lace on his um. <laughs> Anybody else loved your neighbor as much as you've loved yourself? No. Okay, so already, right there at the beginning of the service, you're like, oh, nuts. I've fallen short. Okay? And so we're convicted of our sin. Um, and then we have the Word of God and the response to the Word, okay? And so we read the Word of God. Then the Word of God is proclaimed to us in the sermon. And that is, that is, is a transition. It's God... Um, through the word of God and through the preacher reminding of us, of us of our sinfulness and then reminding us of the promise of God that God loves sinners and forgives them 
through Jesus Christ. And that awakens our hearts to a deeper knowledge and love of God. And then we respond to that, okay? Because remember, what we do is a response to God's grace. And so after the sermon, we, we say the creed. Um, Lord, thank you for calling us. And then we say, therefore, we believe. This is what we believe about you and, and who you are. Um, the door's been opened to us to access God in prayer. And so we come before his throne of grace and offer him the prayers of the people. And we confess our sins, right? We say, Lord, we have sinned. You've reminded us of that. Um, Lord, you are good, and you have promised us grace for those who know Jesus. And so we confess our sins, we repent, we turn back to you. And after the confession, we receive the absolution. Um, we are forgiven of our sins. Um, and then we are equipped, actually, to give each other the peace. Because we're right with God now, we have an opportunity to be right with each other. And so we can say to our neighbor, um, and if you're given the peace, okay, who are the people you've sinned against more than anybody else this week? Your wife, your husband, your kids. You've been made right with God. Now imagine then turning and giving your spouse the peace. I've, God's forgiven me, and now we can forgive each other. Um, that's how that's working, and that's, that's what the piece is there for. It's not like halftime. Um, it's a real symbolic thing that, that we're made right with God and we're made right with each other. Um, so that's how we respond to the Word of God. Any questions on that, Liturgy of the Word? I know we're sort of blowing through this at this point, but um, we've got a few slides to cover. Questions about that? Does that start to make sense? You'll see that pattern. Um, I know you knew this already maybe, but, but do you see how, how, how we're retelling the story, but we're not just retelling it, we're reliving it in our liturgy, and, and how that might actually start to soak in to our hearts about what is God has done for us. Um, and then, then we move from liturgy of the word to the liturgy of the table, the Holy Eucharist, um, where, we, um, where we, we, we're lifted up into the presence of God. Um, I, I don't want to really have discussions about because uh, we've had some, um, about, you know, how is Jesus present in, in the elements on the table? That, that is a profound mystery that I don't understand. Um, but I think a neglected part of the Eucharist is, is actually, in many ways, it's less about Jesus coming to us, and it's more about us coming up to Jesus, okay? So let's think about this for a second. This is called the Sursum Corda, okay? If you want to sound smart in a cocktail party, remember that word. And it's this interchange, okay, between um, the, the clergy who's presiding over the Eucharist and, um, and the people. And what direction are things headed? You know, just read through that really quick. What direction do things seem to be headed here? Up, right. Um, lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. There's this, this uplifting in the sursum corda, okay? And then um, uh, we, give, we give thanks to God. And then we all say this together, okay? Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Do you know where that comes from? Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, and Revelation 7. Now, now what's happening in those passages, we don't have time to turn there, but what's happening there is Isaiah has been called into the throne room of God. And the cherubim and the heavenly creatures are praising God with these words. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might. In Revelation, John has been brought in to heaven. 
Um, literally, the veil on this world has been removed. That's what apocalypse means. The veil has been removed so that John can see heavenly realities. And he sees the throne and he sees the lamb sitting in the middle of it. And he sees the angels and the folks who are in heaven crying out to God saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord. And we come to communion. And if we could only see, if we only had eyes to see what was happening when we were worshiping God. And so we say every week, you say we join, right? We join our voices with angels, right? And archangels and with all the company of heaven. We'll say, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. We're being lifted up at communion into the throne room of God. And if you think about this pattern of redemption, we were talking about it after we're, we're, we're justified before God at the confession, we're made right with each other in the peace. Um, now we're in the process of being made holy and we're getting a glimpse, right, of that final glorification. That final stage where we dwell with Jesus forever, we worship him in his kingdom forever. That's what's happening in Holy Communion. Um, that, that Christ is present in the midst of us because we've been brought into his throne room. Um, it's a pretty amazing thing. And so we're brought before the throne room of Christ. Um, we, right before we pr- receive the body and blood, we say the prayer of humble access, um, which basically is just saying um, the only way we can even come into the presence of Christ is trusting in um, God's great mercy. Uh, it says we're not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under the table. Um, but God shows us mercy. And so we're praying that God will give us the grace to come to his table to receive the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ. But that's not the end of the service, is it? We have the post-communion prayer. And this prayer is we're recognizing, much like the transfiguration, remember we talked about that last week, that, that Peter and James and John's could, John could not stay on the mountain of transfiguration, right? Um, that, that Jesus had to go back down and to go to the cross um, before he could see his full redemption. We're saying in the post-communion prayer, Lord, thank you for this taste of our salvation. Thank you for this taste of heaven, right? Um, thank you for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are members of Jesus Christ. And you see that transition there about midway through. And now, okay, Because of these things, now send us where? Out to do the work you've given us to do. Okay? What's the last song called when everybody um, leaves? When when the clerk? What do y'all? Oh, wait, say it. Recessional. Wrong. (laughs) We're processing out. What happens when you recess a court? They're done, right? We're just beginning. We process into the church, and we process out into the world. We don't stop worshiping God when the final song is over. We start worshiping him even more fully out in the world. Um, and, and so that's an important thing to consider. Um, this prayer is, is it's not just like, okay, one more thing, and then we can go eat donuts. This prayer is, is God, give us this grace. Thank you for this grace you've given us. Um, may we use it to proclaim your gospel in the world. Um, and do you see how this all fits in with, with, with Cramer? He wants to say, look, this is, you're justified by God's faith. This is a response 
to the grace of God. We're justified by our faith in, in God. This is a response to God's um, unmerited favor towards us. Thank you, God, for loving us. Let us go tell others. Okay? And so this is something we're doing not in order to earn the love of Christ, but because of the love of Christ. Um, and think about this, you know. The liturgy retells this story, but because we participate in it, we relive this story week in and week out. Um, it becomes part of who you are. It's like we're um, marinating, okay, in the Word of God and in the story of God in, in, in such a way that, that will send us out into the world. At least that, that's the point of the liturgy. Um, can it be called dumb, become dull and rote? It, it, it can. But if you really know what's happening in it and you're expecting to meet Christ, um, then it can really be God can use it um, transformatively um, through his through his grace towards us. Um, that's it. Next week, we start a new round. Um, I Am Statements will be in here. Basic Christianity um, is a book by John Stott. We have a man named Scott reading a book by John Stott, and neither of them are related to John Scott, our priest. Um, <laughs> We'd love for you to call the church office and tell us you're planning on coming to this class, but even if you show up next week, that's okay as well. There's a book component. Um, I've got a couple minutes for questions, but if you need to get going, you certainly can do that. Uh, Let's pray, and then I'll answer a few questions, and we'll be on our way. Lord, thank you again that um, we have this weight of worshiping you that uh, reflects the pattern of your salvation. We know this isn't the only way to worship you, and um, and, and in some contexts, it's not even the best way to worship you, Lord. But we thank you that, that in our context, you've given us this, this way that, um, that somehow in our worship, Lord, you touch our hearts. Because you help us, Lord, to think about you rightly and to love you as you've called us to love you as a response to your grace. Um, send us out now into this world. Rejoicing in your spirit, give us, Lord, a um, lively faith to proclaim you in our words and our actions this week. And we ask this in Jesus' name.